Join me in a brief word of prayer, if you would. Lord, as uh, John mentioned there at the beginning of our reading, um, give us uh, hearts to hear your word and to follow it, minds uh, to understand and lives that live out that understanding. Amen. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century French Christian, a genius, uh, known for his contributions to science, to mathematics, to philosophy. On the 23rd of November in 1654, after months of a severe depression, he had a, a spiritual experience that led him to enter a monastery. And after his death in 1662, a handwritten note recording Pascal's experience on this occasion, a note now known as the memorial, was found sewn into his jacket. So he'd kept it with him, sewn into his clothing for the rest of his life. And in that memorial, Pascal famously wrote of the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers, the God of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think we should press Pascal's contrast between the God of Abraham and the God of the philosophers too far. After all, following this experience, Pascal began writing his famous pensées or thoughts on Christian apologetics. Still, there is a contrast between God as uh, an object of thought and God as a self-revealing subject. C.S. Lewis once noted the difference between being faced with God at the end of an argument which demands your assent and being faced with God as a person who demands your confidence. Now, Pascal knew that the Christian God is both the conclusion of an argument and the one who reveals himself in Jesus. And one might well contrast the God of ancient Greek philosophy with the God of the truly Christian metaphysic informed by revelation and scripture. For example, Aristotle's God was merely the, the first cause of change, who is himself both unchanged and unchanging, the, the prime mover who powers the cosmos. But not its creative its cause, uh, but it's, it's unapproachable inspiration. That is, um, Aristotle rather believed that God was the prime mover who causes things to, to change and to move by attraction 
In much the same way as a, a bowl of milk attracts a cat, but it doesn't cause the cat. Aristotle lacked the biblical notion of a Trinitarian Godhead who deliberately made us, caused us to be, to be a kingdom of priests. Writing that man is by nature a social animal. Very famous observation about humanity. But then he says, anyone who either cannot lead the common life or is so self-sufficient as not to need to and therefore does not partake of society is either a beast or a god. And since God must be self-sufficient, Aristotle concluded that God can't be social like we are. But a God who can't be social can't be essentially defined by love. By contrast, uh, John, he has a vision of a God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ as one who loves us and indeed wrote in 1 John 4, 8, a God who is love. How can this be? Well, the Welsh philosopher H.P. Owen put the biblical answer to this question in this way. He said, the doctrine of the Trinity reconciles the paradoxical affirmations that God is self-sufficient and that he is love. John says that his revelation comes from Jesus Christ, that the human nature that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, added to his divine nature in the Incarnation. And John also says that Jesus received this revelation from his Father, from God his Father, the first person of the Trinity, God the Father. I do nothing on my own, says Jesus in John's Gospel, but speak just what the Father has taught me. And what of the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. Well, according to Isaiah 11, 1 to 3, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of God, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This passage became the basis of an idea of the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit, as one commentator said, has one in name but sevenfold in virtues. Uh, 
So it's been suggested that the, the conception of the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit gave rise to the idea of the seven spirits before the throne of God. These seven spirits before the throne actually represent the one Spirit of God. Moreover, John's seven letters to the Revelation, in Revelation contain, as he says, what the Spirit says to the churches. So Revelation clearly displays a Trinitarian concept of God. There is one God, but three persons in that God. Now this is, of course, a completely mind-boggling idea. How can we think about God as Trinity? Well, we can start by recognising that the Trinity certainly isn't a logical contradiction. It's not the idea of one God who is also three gods in one and the same sense of the term God. That would be a contradiction. Rather, God is one personal divine reality who is composed of three divine persons, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, each of whom is divine in slightly different ways. The Trinity isn't three separate gods who exist independently of or even in competition with one another as the gods of pagan polytheism were. But neither is God the single undifferentiated person like Allah in the Quran. Rather, God is an integrated tripersonal mystery of love, as one theologian put it. There's even a plausible argument that this must be the case. For surely, as the, as the greatest possible being, as the most beautiful being possible, God surely must encompass love in its greatest personal forms. Now, love can be divided into three categories that only a Trinitarian God can encompass. These qualitatively different, distinct categories of love are A, love of self. B, the love of one person for another person. And C, the love shared by two people who love each other for something, for someone beyond their love. By embracing these activities of self-loving, of other-loving, and of loving with, only a Trinitarian God can embrace all three types of love. As the theologian Brian Hebblethwaite says, love's excellence requires not only love given and love received, but also love shared with another. 
Now, since Revelation mentions trumpets on 15 occasions, I checked, I thought uh, I could drop in at this point uh, theologian Jeremy Begbie's musical analogy for the Trinity, and I have forewarned Muriel on the uh, organ that I'm going to do this. So think of a musical chord and the fact that a musical chord is composed of three different notes. Those are the, the first and the third and the fifth note of any musical scale. So, for example, the chord of C major is composed of the notes C and the note E and the note G. Notice that even though each individual note is a sound, all three notes played together are also a sound. A chord is both one sound and three different sounds. By analogy, God is one divine personal being composed of three divine persons. Now that's the the theology. That's being faced with God as an object of thought, you might think. Well, yes it is. But that's important to do because how we think about God has practical implications for how we live in relationship with God. What's the practical impact of John's Trinitarian revelation from God? Well, for one thing, the ultimate purpose of our lives, the greatest good that we can aim at, the supreme value that we can trying to exhibit is surely love. And the doctrine of the Trinity is the very foundation of that fact in Christian theology. It means that love goes all the way up into reality, into ultimate reality, into the very essence of who God is. The doctrine of the Trinity shows us how God is Love, And the doctrine of the Trinity explains how God manages to be love without needing to create us in order to enjoy loving relationships. And that means that when God does create us, he must have done so purely out of self-giving love. He didn't need to create us, but he chose to create you anyway. This is the God of love who reveals himself to John through Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. God isn't a distant and disinterested God like the God of Aristotle. God is the self-revealing, loving God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the incarnate 
spirit-filled, spirit-giving God of John and Pascal and of all of us gathered here because of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve, to be in relationship with him, to serve his God and Father and to do that in the power of his spirit. Now before I wrap up, let me note that I wouldn't be at all surprised if you had some questions about what I've said this morning. And as is, I hope, becoming our, our tradition, I will note that I will be hanging around afterwards for coffee and will be very happy uh, to chat over some of these ideas and implications further with anyone who'd like to. Let me wrap up by noting that the, the Greek word for revelation is apokalupsis, if I've pronounced that correctly. Apokalupsis. Where apo means away from, and a calupsis is a veiling. So it's an away from being veiled. An acacalupsis is an unveiling, a revealing, a revelation of something formerly hidden. Now the book of Revelation, if it's about anything, is about things revealed by Jesus that show us God's deep investment in the future of the world that pierced him on the cross. In 1 Corinthians 14.6, the Apostle Paul describes the preacher's message as an apocalypsis. Paul also says that we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. And so we see that as we faithfully worship our Trinitarian God in love, so God helps us to be a living apocalypsis of his love. Uh, one of our Sunday school groups is called Shine. As Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. That they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So let us pray that the Spirit of Christ will help us to be a living apocalypsis, shining out his love into the lives of those around us. Amen.